Okay, so we are in the book of Revelation at the moment, Revelation chapter 2, and just a couple of things to mention this morning, just to correct myself from last week. It was actually Balaam who was sent to curse Israel on the orders of Balak, and Balaam, en route to curse the children of Israel, saw the angel of the Lord and the donkey that was carrying Balaam to curse the children of Israel was able to stop Balaam from being responsible for cursing Israel. Well, Balaam tried to curse Israel, but the Lord turned a curse into a blessing, which is a great picture, is it not, of eternal security? Also, I need to just correct a figure I gave last week concerning the amounts of Jews that were killed by the Lord as a result of getting involved with this sex orgy from verse 14. It was actually 24,000 not 42,000, but still many, many people were put to death. The term Nicolation from chapter 2, as I said last week, concerns the two-tier system, but on top of that, it also speaks about lording it, lording their authority over the common people. And you think of the word of God which says how the common people have the Lord Jesus Christ gladly. We looked at the term, uh, the candlestick, being moved out of his place, concerning chapter 2 verse 5 and that's a picture of a carnal church that's a picture of a mechanical church simply going through the motions doing their own thing also the description of eating of the tree of life which in the paradise of god from verse 7 a very interesting piece of scripture to me and i think and i've been pondering this over the last several days that when a person gets saved we know that they are right now in the third heaven in a spiritual sense so i just wonder if it's possible that we are somehow eating of the tree of life, which is in paradise, being the third heaven, of course, in a spiritual sense. On top of that, we know from verse 17 that when we get saved, we get a new name, which, of course, is applicable, relevant to those that are in the third heaven, not those of us which are on the earth. These are very deep subjects, and I'm only giving you a very general overview of them this morning. Also, one final thought to offer to you all. The text speaks about Jesus having these stars in his right hand. And think of that term, he's my right-hand man. So Jesus is God's right-hand man at God's right-hand side with the seven angels in his right hand. On top of that, he's also able to comfort the church, being John, with his right hand. I love the attention to detail from the book of Revelation. And one final thought to share with you all before we get into verse 18 today. From verse 13... You've got this description of Satan's seat, and you've got the church in Pergamos, very much in bed, very much affiliated to this satanic setup, can I say, being affiliated to the state of Satan. And that church from Pergamos covers a period from 325 AD, which would be Constantine, right up until 600 AD, or just after, which would uh, concern Gregory the Great. So keep those thoughts in mind, if you will. And as I go through the text this morning, I'll look at other verses, of course, which may be relevant to the subject at hand. One final thought from verse 17, this very obscure reference to eat of the hidden manna, which, like I said last week, would be in reference to the Lord's flesh in a spiritual sense, not a literal sense, and to drink of the wine in a spiritual sense, not a literal sense. But after that, it speaks about receiving a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, 
which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. It is a very obscure piece of scripture. And in brief, I think it could either be to do with an athlete receiving a white stone to show that he had completed his race, his uh, marathon, whatever he was a part of, compared to receiving a black stone, a picture of being disqualified. Apart from that, I'm very much at a loss as to explain what that piece of scripture may perhaps mean. But for today, let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in Revelation, also referred to as the Apocalypse, chapter 2, written by the Apostle John, late 1st century, from verse 18, which will be addressed to the angel, being in the third heaven, and yet somehow mirrored to the church on the earth. This is a very mystical book, but let's see what the Word of God shows us from this morning. Revelation 2, verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works in charity, and service and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Son of God, verse 18. Initially he was referred to from chapter 113 as the Son of Man. Now he has been referred to as a Son of God, which will feed into him as being Lord of Lords and King of Kings and the Son of David. But here, 18, Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire. Whatever you think and do as a saved person, whatever you want to do as a saved person, will be judged at the judgment seat of the Lord. Whatever you do in word, thought, or deed as an unsaved person will be dealt with severely at the great white throne judgment. On top of his eyes, being like a flame of fire, his feet are like fine brass. And I gave you the count from chapter 1 concerning the fourth man in the lion's den. And the Lord walked into the lion's den and was able to rescue not only Daniel's friends, but Daniel as well. A great picture of the Jews, that faithful remnant being saved in the great tribulation. I know thy works in charity and service and faith, and thy patience and thy works. Works is mentioned twice, which is a great thing, because when you get saved, you are saved unto good works. You are saved to do good works. You do good works because you are saved, not in order to get saved, and never in order to stay saved. And the last to be more than the first, very much putting others ahead of themselves. Also the, uh, the church of Thyatira, which means a lax church, will cover the period from 600 AD, which would be Gregory the Great, like I say, up until around 1520, 1525, concerning the arrival of Martin Luther. Look at verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because I sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. You think of Jezebel? You think of Jezebel from the Old Testament? And yet this term for Jezebel is not describing a woman per se, it's describing a church system. A system which will start in the first century concerning the Nicolaitan problem, going right up until chapter 17, with the whore very much dominating the seven hills of Rome, being a Catholic church, of course. But let's look at this a bit more carefully. I have a few things against thee, because I sufferest, you put up with that woman, being a system, Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess. Let me just stop you there and say this, that when you come across a woman who calls herself a prophetess or an apostle, you are dealing with a false teacher. On top of that, you are dealing with somebody who has been deceived 
maybe demon-possessed as well. There are no prophets today. There are no apostles today. An apostle, very briefly, would be someone who saw the Lord Jesus Christ and was chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ to represent him. A prophet was someone who was given scriptural truths to get the gospel out. A prophet would be someone who was commissioned in the early church before the New Testament was written to not only affirm what the apostles were teaching, but also to reaffirm that they were the Lord's true messengers. But for today, we have the word of God. We rest on the scripture. We don't waste time with those that think they are apostles or prophetesses. But he goes on to say, to teach and to seduce my servants, the Lord's people, to commit fornication. Could be sexual and most certainly spiritual. And to eat things sacrificed unto idols. You think of Jezebel from the Old Testament, tied in with Ahab. You think of the Catholic Church for today, very much worshipping dead people, offering sacrifices, and going through third parties like Mary, the Pope, and the saints. But nevertheless, this term for Jezebel, representing a female system, calling herself a prophetess, is responsible for the seduction of the Lord's people. One more time, to commit fornication, spiritual and literal, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols, being devils, being demons, nothing new under the sun. That's one of the main reasons why the Reformation was launched. 21, and I gave a space to repent of a fornication, and she repented not. The Lord gave Jezebel this church system, if you will, this uh, wicked setup, the chance to repent. That shows the Lord's mercy. But it says how she repented not, very much like the Sanhedrin. They were told to repent on numerous occasions, and they passed it up time after time. So let me say this then. As a result of the Lord offering Jezebel the chance to be saved, she is now past the point of no return. She cannot be redeemed. And that's why you were told from chapter 18, verse 4, to come out of her, my people. If you are a Catholic and you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, or if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, get out of that system. It can't help you. It will destroy you. 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. I'm going to cast her, Jezebel, the whore, into a bed. A pretty uh, bleak term, a pretty uh, graphic term, a pretty lurid term. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Spiritual adultery and also literal adultery. And as a result of not getting saved, they're going to be thrown. They're going to be uh, placed into the great tribulation. They will miss the rapture because they're not saved. And as a result, go into the great tribulation. Except they repent of their deeds. Another final chance to get saved. Another chance to repent. And the Lord made it his business to preach to the children of Israel over three and a half years. And he told them to repent. And he told them to repent. And he told them to repent. And here the Lord is still giving this whore and her children a chance to repent. But of course, through the Lord's foreknowledge, they won't repent. They're going to be damned. And they are very much the wheat. They are the goats. They are the ones who are going to cry out to the Lord from Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. But take a look, please, at verse 23. And I will kill her children with death, and all the church shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I'll give unto every one of you according to your works. On the one hand, you've got a great picture there of the Lord's omniscience. He's all-knowing. 
He knows the beginning from the end. And yet the beginning of this is pretty severe. I will kill her children with death. If the Antichrist doesn't kill them, he will kill them. Keep your hand in Revelation 2 and go to Second Thessalonians. Remember, this is a eschatological passage. And from Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, Paul speaks about the following from verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until be taken out of the way. So you got the iniquity already very much at work concerning apostasy, very much up and running during the life of the Apostle Paul, and will continue to be very active until the Lord returns. Eight, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy the brightness of his coming. Second advent, not the rapture. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, the false prophet, and on top of that, the Antichrist, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not love of the truth that they might be saved. So they had the chance to be saved, but they didn't want to be saved. They loved their sins more than the Lord. 11. For this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, like the worship of Mary, like the adoration of the Eucharist, like all that wickedness. And if you keep that in mind, this will make sense when we go back to Revelation chapter 2. That they all might be damned, who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So go back to Revelation chapter 2, please. And Revelation chapter 2, 23 again. And I will kill her children with death. Those that won't get saved. Those that are affiliated with the whore, like Jezebel. Those that are part of the Nicolaitan setup, a two-tier system, conquering the common people. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. Those that get saved. You've got seven churches. And so far, we've been looking at the first four churches. And I'll search the reins and hearts. The Lord will check their hearts out. And I'll give unto every one of you according to your works. So these verses very clearly point to the fact that the Lord is long-suffering. He is wanting those that are parts of this system to be saved. And yet he knows that, for the most part, they won't be saved. We go back to 22. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. If we go to the book of Hebrews, chapter, I think it's chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is honourable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. He will start with literal sins, physical sins, and he will also deal severely with spiritual sins. Also keep in mind something which came to me just this morning, that on the one hand, Christ is commending and condemning these churches, and yet he's not dealing with their everyday sins, like lying or stealing or being bitter, for example. He's dealing with sins concerning um, their apathy, their indifference, because these are saved people, and yet as groups with candlesticks in heaven, some burn more brighter than others, and therefore he's going to deal with the hearts. He's going to get right down to why they do what they do. But sins per se are not the issue here. That is also mentioned back in Hebrews chapter 6. Let's not keep going over the same old works like baptisms 
and repentance from dead works. Let's go on to perfection. You understand that's what I think we are really looking at here this morning. 24. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I put upon you none of the burden. It's a great thing to be able to say that some of these people didn't know the depths of Satan. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul spoke about this uh, from verse 20. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit a malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. In other words, be as wise as you can, like wise as a serpent when it comes to the word of God, and yet be as gentle as a dove when it comes to malice, wickedness. Also, there's a scripture, mirrors this, from Romans chapter 16. Um, Romans chapter 16. It's always good to know what goes on in the world, but don't get too involved with the wickedness of the world. Uh, Romans 16, verse 19. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet, I'd have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Go back to Revelation. And here the Lord is telling you from verse 24, which have not known the depths of Satan. Satan is so deep, so slippery, so conniving that for most of us, we don't take him seriously. I mean, really take him seriously. Yes, we know that after the Lord God of the Bible, he is the most mentioned person in the word of God. And yet for the most, we as the redeemed, we as the true church, we as say people don't really take him seriously and therefore when it says which have not known the depths of satan just makes me shudder as they speak i put upon you none other burden stay as you are don't have a meltdown don't panic 25 but that which you have already hold fast till i come rest on the rock of all ages 26 and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As a vessel of a potter, shall they be broken to shivers. Even as I received of my father. Shivers, Old English for splinters. And here the context clearly is to do something. 26. He that overcometh, he that is born again. And I showed you from 1 John 4 and 1 John chapter 5 that if you have believed... On the Lord Jesus Christ, you are, present tense, an overcomer. So when it says, he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, very much an eschatological term, not the end of your life, but those that get saved in the tribulation, to him will I give power over the nations. Matthew 25, concerning the millennium, of course. But it's conditional on you keeping his works unto the end. You see, to rule and reign with the Lord is conditional it's not automatic yes you go into the millennial kingdom once you're born again John chapter 3 says you can't even see the kingdom of God until you are born again but to be a part in that kingdom to have authority and privileges is dependent on what you do after you are saved grace is given to the sinner to be saved as a free gift but to rule and reign is a work that isn't given automatically. And that's why you were told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that some people, like adulterers, fornicators, effeminate individuals, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That term inherit is something which 
is given to you. You don't inherit everlasting life, but you can inherit the millennial kingdom depending on what you do after you are saved. 27 again. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. When Christ comes back, he comes back with a sword. He comes back with his armies. And I just wonder if we, the church, when we come back with him, are going to have swords as well. I wonder. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, being splinters, even as I received of my father. The best is yet to come, literally. 28. And I will give him the morning star. Now Christ is the morning star. And I thought to myself, when I read this some weeks ago, what more can he give us? He's given us everlasting life. He has died in our place. And yet now it tells us that he will give us the morning star. All I can assume from this piece of scripture is that we're going to get him. In a sense, I don't quite understand. Of course, we are like stars, being spirits, being angels when we die. But the term the morning star is very much in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. 29. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So the address is given first and foremost to the churches in Turkey, first century. But like I said last week, these churches have a double application. The message goes way beyond those first century churches. So let's recap Revelation chapter 2 and then conclude. It starts off with the church of Ephesus, starting around the time of the apostles, Peter and Paul specifically, right up until 170, 200 AD or thereabouts. The church of Ephesus starts off well. Paul wrote one of his epistles to them, but by the time John writes to them, they're in trouble. They have backslidden. See, the term Ephesus means to let go, to relax. And they are told to repent. They are told to get back into fellowship with the Lord. Otherwise, they will lose their candlestick's place in heaven. The Lord will take the candlestick and remove it out of his place, which again is in the third heaven, not on the earth. From verse 8, we come across the church of Smyrna, which means bitterness. And that church starts from around... 200 AD, or thereabouts, to 325 AD, concerning Constantine. And they are bitter because they have been persecuted, like very few before them or after them. They hang in there, they do great things for the Lord, and yet they are slightly rebuked, or they have their wings clipped over this term for a synagogue of Satan. And the Lord explains to them that they need to deal with that. He also says from 10 how the devil will throw some of these people into prison some are going to be put to death some are going to be able to survive this detention like Job he spent 42 uh, months being uh, persecuted and that's a picture of a Jew in the tribulation 42 months three and a half years Paul too would be put to the mill as they say but he would would lose his life he like Peter would go on to be sacrificed martyred for the Lord and therefore those that are faithful unto death. They won't be spared. They're going to get a crown of life, a martyr's crown. From verse uh, 12, we come across the church of Pergamos from 325 AD to around 600 AD. And during that time, you've got Augustine, you've got Jerome, you've got Oregon, or Origen. And these individuals 
Along with other infamous characters, are responsible for Vaticanus and Sinaticus, two awful, depraved Greek manuscripts which continue to plague the church. And both manuscripts are not inspired whatsoever. They are very much an abomination to the Lord. And they are, on the one hand, commended for dwelling where Satan's seat is, which around this time will be Rome. So you've got saved people that are somehow mixed up with this Catholic mix. And Satan's seat is very much in reference to not only Pergamus, verse 12, which is modern-day Turkey, but by the time we get to verse 13, it has been moved to Rome. The early church dies out. The bishops and cardinals and the popes replace what was once Christian. We call that pagan Rome. I should say it was pagan Rome becoming papal Rome. Antipas has been cited as a martyr who was slain where Satan dwelleth. And you think of the Antichrist when he arrives and he goes into the third temple and starts to sacrifice. And some people think he's going to sacrifice human beings. I don't know about that, but that's what some people believe. And as a result, that's going to be televised. He may even behead people live on television. That's certainly uh, the impression I get from chapter 11 concerning the Antichrist who destroys the two witnesses and when Christ comes back Revelation 19 he comes back on a horse with a sword to put people down and that's also mentioned over in uh, Psalm 110 but Pergamus 325 to 600 AD is very much cited as being somehow affiliated where Satan's seat is where his throne is and Balaam 14 and 15 are cited as being responsible for the death of 24,000 Jews back in the book of Numbers. And these people that are found in the Old Testament are reappearing in the New Testament in a spiritual sense. As Solomon would say, there's nothing new under the sun. The Nicolaitans 15 are despised by the Lord because they conquer the common people. The common people have the Lord gladly. But those in organized religion don't need the Lord Jesus Christ, they despise him. And on top of that, they don't need the scripture, they got tradition. They worship their tradition, they worship the magisterium of their wicked and depraved church. 16, repents, or he'll come unto these people quickly, and will fight against them with the mouth of his sword. Revelation 19 is a cross-reference. 17, speaks about overcoming, which you have already done if you are saved. And as a result, being able to eat of the hidden manna and receive a white stone, which I mentioned at the beginning of this message. 18, Thyatira, from 600 to around 1520 AD, which means a lax church. And that takes us up till the arrival of Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation. The Son of God is mentioned here in glory, having eyes like unto a flame of fire all-seeing, all-knowing, all-penetrating, and his feet are like fine brass. He commends them for their works and charity and service and faith, and patience, and thy works. That term works appears twice, and the last to be more than a first. They put others first. However, 20, he has a few things against them because they put up with that woman, Jezebel, this whore, this false teacher, and I'm going to spiritualize that and uh, apply it to the Catholic Church, the whore of Rome. There's no other female system in the world that comes anywhere near this, which calls herself a prophetess. On top of that, the Pope of Rome calls himself an apostle. And you ask yourself this, when was the last time you saw a Pope do any miracles? 
I mean real miracles, like feeding 5,000 people, walking on the water, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, restoring people's ears or their hearing. Never, of course. And this woman Jezebel is teaching and seducing my servants, the Lord's people. And that's why you were told from Second Corinthians 6.14 to 18 not to be yoked up with unsaved people. Don't even touch that thing which is defiled, the last part of the book of Jude. Don't even be involved with the appearance of evil. Because this woman is committing fornication. And every time you pray to Mary, every time you pray to a saint or good old Mother Teresa, you are committing fornication in a spiritual sense. Because the Lord is a jealous God. He won't share you with anyone or anything. And on top of that, we can't get away from the fact this could also be literal fornication. Premarital sex, bestiality, sodomy, the list goes on and on and on. And to eat things sacrificed unto idols, the worship of demons, devils, Satanism. 21, the Lord gives her space to repent, being Jezebel, being the whore of Rome, being all false religions. And she repented not. She said, no, thank you, Lord. I'm going to stay as I am. I'm good to go. I got my way. You got your way. I got my truth. You got your truth. The kind of stuff we hear on the streets regularly. And as a result, he would cast her, this false system, and her prostitute daughters and sons into a bed. Hebrews 13.4. That commit adultery with her. And as a result of that, they go into great tribulation. Where either the Antichrist is going to kill them, or the Lord will kill them. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Or maybe the pestilences, the seals... Are going to kill them as well. I don't know. Except they repent of their deeds. So even up to the 11th hour. There's a chance for the daughters of the whore. The sons of the whore to repent. And yes sometimes people do come out of these systems. I got an email last week. Of a family that came out of the Mormon religion. Five members. It does happen. But it's rare. 23. The Lord will kill her children with death. And again you think of the. Plagues and pestilences that are going to be unleashed on the earth during the Great Tribulation. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. Christ speaking, looking into your hearts, not just why you do what you do, but the reasons for doing what you do and why you do what you do. And I'll give unto every one of you according to your works. You reap what you sow. 24, Thyatira, still very much mentioned here. Haven't known the depths of Satan, which is a good thing. If you are saved, don't abuse your salvation, don't abuse your grace, and therefore I will put upon you none of the burden. 1 Corinthians 14, Romans chapter 16 are good cross-references. 25, but that which you have already hold fast till I come. Rest on the rock of all ages. 26, 27, 28, if you persevere on, if you stay faithful unto the Lord, you're going to rule over the nations, the peoples, in the millennium, with a rod of iron, almost like a dictatorship as well. And 29, I'll close in 29. He that hath an ear, a term used many times in the synoptics, let him hear what the Spirit, Holy Ghost, saith unto the churches. The churches are warned, and vicariously you and I are warned, and those that aren't saved are warned as well. Repent, or else suffer the consequences. But I'm out of time, so we will close there in Revelation chapter 2 and pick it up next week in Revelation chapter 3.